the guy that ended up charging me that day with the crimes ended up being somebody that used to go to my meetings. He would pretend that he was from a different school trying to set up a students for sensible drug policy chapter and was having difficulty and was asking for advice. But he was kind of weird and he didn't really like seem to know anything about drug policy. Yeah, that dude ended up being an undercover <laughs> cop. And he walked up that day when they they arrested us. He walked up to me and he looked at me and goes, Oh, look who we have here. I don't know what I'm charging you with, but it's going to stick. Welcome, beautiful thinkers. So that's a clip from this episode. It's the first half of an interview with my friend and assistant Lily Forrester talking about her wild and somewhat tragic journey does have a happy ending though so start out talking about her early life and then about her becoming a drug dealer and later about fleeing to mexico and well there's more to it little content warning quickly we are talking about some serious subjects here talking about drugs but also about death about dead people about child abuse so just be aware of that if you're listening with your family or something Lily's website is highlyfunctionalgrowth.com. My website is beautifulpodcast.com. So have a look, check it out, share it with your friends if you feel like it. And let's begin. This is a beautiful thought. So I'm here with my, my friend and assistant, Lily Forrester, and she's going to tell us a long and wild story of personal adversity and Mexico. <laughs> how are you, Lily? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. That's good. So you said we should start the story in your childhood. So what can you tell us about your childhood? Well, my childhood story is like, at least as far as I'm concerned, ever developing, um, even to this day. Because um, it was crazy before I was even born. So my parents were both like hippies, my mom especially. So she was very much like, she was a drug dealer. And she was a drug dealer before she met my dad. And she was a drug dealer after my, she met my dad. So like... That led to some hijinks. Um, and, like, I didn't know about a lot of it until, like, recently her best friend had sent me some letters. Because my mom was, like, my mom did have a penchant for lying to her family. But when it came to her her friend, she would be honest about everything. And what she would do, essentially, is every so often when things would get really bad, she'd essentially, like, word vomit onto a page and send it across across Ohio to her friend with, like, handwritten directions on how to come find her. <laughs> and, like, some of the stories were really okay. crazy. One of them being, I guess when my parents got together, like, my dad left his wife, which was, like, not that big of a deal because she had already left him for a woman. Um, and my mom was leaving her husband. And I guess those two people... Hmm got together when we're trying to kill my parents. Like, my mom told me a little bit about this, but she didn't tell me the detail. And there was even, like, windows of the vehicles my mom was getting into shot out. They were trying to kill them that much. Brake lines cut, you know. It was, like, pretty heavy shit. And that was essentially how I came into the world. Wow. Wait, so you, so your father's ex-wife and your mother's ex husband were trying to kill your parents they were trying to kill my parents which was crazy to consider wow. um already before that like my mom was dealing with the fact that like the ex-husband essentially while my mom was at work gave her son away their son together gave him away my brother to his essentially my brother's aunt but on his dad's side and just like told him like go as far as you can with him and don't come back and she like disappeared out of state with my brother uh. So, like, this was all happening at the same time. It was years before, like, you know, I would even meet my brother because, like, he was so far away and it was such a crazy story. And how old were you at that time? Well, like, at that time, when my brother first got taken, that was before I was born. And then, like, mm. the first few years of my parents being together, 
my brother, you know, my mom was trying to figure out where he was and couldn't find him. And then when she could find him, she was trying to figure out how to get him back. And it was legal battles and stuff like that. So, like, I don't have any early memories of that brother of mine at all. I My first memories are, like, when he was, like, I don't know. I was probably, like, two at the time, maybe, when we met, which is crazy to consider because he was, like, eight at the time. So, <laughs> So, well, we can talk more about your brother later, I guess. But what happened with what happened with your parents that people wanted to kill them? I think it was just one of those things where, like, the woman that my dad ended up with was an extremely jealous woman. And, like, I, I know this because I only met her once. And that was, like, when I was almost 18 and I saw her in a store. And she just stood there and stared at me with, like one of the most disgusted looks I've ever seen a total stranger stare at me with. And then my dad, like, walked up and saw her and was like, whoa, Perry? And she just kind of, like, ran away when she saw him. But, like, they were just kind of crazy, spiteful people, you know? Like, what kind of man is just going to take a... My mom was essentially planning to leave him, so he took her son and gave him away to his sister that he didn't even know that well, from my understanding. He just was like, here, take this kid, just so she can't have it, you know? She did that. Ah, okay. Yeah, it was was a thing of spite. Because her letters talk about, oh, I'm getting a job, oh, I'm working, oh, I'm going to leave him, and then, oh, it's my son's gone. Kind of crazy to consider. All of this happening even before I was born, like, my parents getting together and all of that. And then afterwards, my mom becoming involved with the Hells Angels and all the stuff that comes with that. It was just like, is this childhood or is this some weird movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, but I guess at the time you just had to accept everything because that's that's what you thought life was. Well, basically, yeah. Like, I, it, it hadn't occurred to me until I was in school. And I was, like, laying all of this stuff out for people that I was going to school with. Because they asked, like, how many siblings do you have? Why don't you live with your siblings? And then it's just like, okay. So you explain hmm. all of this to them. And they're just like, wow, that's weird. And it's like, wait, that's not what your life is like? Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of a crazy story. It's also kind of confusing. And part of the problem is I'm also still trying to figure out, like, because I'm writing a book on all of this. And it's like, what really happened then? Because the stories that I heard as a child were very different from what I've been being told as an adult. So, yes, yes. So what was your mother's involvement with the Hells Angels? Okay, so my mom always had a penchant for drugs. And for that, like, she she sold drugs as long as she realistically did them because she wanted to support her habit. Um, I'm I'm trying to... I still haven't gotten a straight answer on when her fascination with opium started, but I know that it got bad after she left my dad because when she left my dad, she moved in essentially with the leader of the Hells Angels sometime soon after that. And she was selling opium for him and was there living with her boyfriend Mm. who pretty much like raped and molested several of my siblings. Um, But it's like, yeah, we were living in this guy's house and I didn't really understand it at the time. I just understand that I was understood I was being kept from my father. Um, My dad was also fighting for custody of me and he was getting like weird blockages he was also getting like death threats from the hell's angels because he started poking around like once he realized she was living there he tried to go to the police about it and the police were directly in bed with the hell's angels like he he wasn't granted custody despite being the better father all because my mom was just selling Hmm. opium for them right which city is this in? This was in Northeast Ohio. So, like, in Northern Ohio, the Hells Angels is huge, especially in Cleveland. And this is a suburb of Cleveland. So, like, 40 minutes, you know, outside of Cleveland. An hour outside of Cleveland is where this is. Even to this day, like, the Cleveland police has a whole, like, leg of their police force that drives around on souped-up Harleys. That... <laughs> are pretty much they're they're hell's angels in cop uniforms so yeah well the uh, the the biggest gang in the in the state right (laughs) pretty sure it's biggest gang in that part of the part of the country because i'm pretty sure they were like all over the northeastern united states and further 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, well, the combination of two gangs, the cops and the Hells Angels. Yeah, oh, exactly, exactly. Definitely the, <laughs> definitely the Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what was it like living with a Hells Angel? I don't remember very much. Well, like, the memories I do have were traumatic, but were for different reason. Because, like... Um, the one big memory I have from that time in my life was like, most people don't know this, but I was literally born a thumb sucker. Like there used to be an ultrasound image of me with my thumb in my mouth. And I came out and had my thumb in my mouth all the time. And like my mom's boyfriend at the time, he was essentially a child molester. He, his response was to do, you know, things essentially like lock me out of his sight. So he couldn't see me sucking my thumb. That's all I remember from that. Dad and I remember we were living there and like in the middle of the night, my mom came and woke woke us up and was like, come on, we're going on an adventure. We're going on an adventure. I was like three at the time, maybe. So I was very young. And I was like, I didn't understand it. So I just like got up half asleep and went with, with her. It was me and my sister. Well, my sister like got a hold of one of my mom's journals because my mom used to write everything that happened to her down. She called it the X-Files. And, uh, my mom found a journal from this time, and my mom basically said, like, hey, you know, we were being chased by, you know, Corrado, I guess was his name, the Hells Angels guy. She apparently, from what I guess, had fucked him out of money, or he thought she fucked him out of money, or something happened. But, like, the the bottom line was, the plan was he was going to come and kill her and kill us, and she got out of there before he could, in the middle of the night randomly which like that was a crazy I, I didn't even know about that until i was like 20 and my sister had found that random journal and was like hey do you remember this because i remember this but i don't remember it being like this <laughs> your mother's trying to put put on this show put on a happy face and and make it just seem like you're having fun well yeah she it was like how do you explain to a kid you know something like that without them freaking out and especially me like i was i was a very gullible child so you could tell me anything and i would just trust and believe it i was so. easy in that way so you were never molested by this guy, Carrado? Well, it wasn't the guy Carrado that was doing the molesting. It was this guy named Jamie. Um, that I'm not sure on because I have no way of knowing for sure. I don't have a lot of memories from that time. I know for a fact because it came back to my sister and my older brother's memory that they were both raped by him. Um, and they were five and six, I'm pretty sure. Four and six, I think. Something like that. They were closer in age than I was to them. And I was three at the time, so, like, who knows? I I used to be like, oh, I was never molested because I don't have memory of it. But that doesn't mean I wasn't molested, especially because, like, I have a lot of memories before living with him. And I have a lot of memories after. So it wasn't like I just wasn't, you know, cognitive yeah. enough to mem have memories. I have memories from my first birthday, so. Really? What happened on your first birthday? Kind of an interesting ghost story. It's not a scary story, but it's something that's, like, stuck with me my whole life. Like, when I was born, my parents lived in this haunted house. And, like, they didn't believe in haunted houses, especially my dad before that house. But by the time he left, he did. It was a part of the Underground Railroad, though. Like, they was theorized that part of Uncle Tom's cabin was written like in that basement it, it had just like this real interesting history to it and i remember my first birthday because like the only memory i have it's really brief and it was just like it just stuck with me of me looking i had like this crappy little plastic mirror that they gave me for my birthday and i was looking at it and i remember thinking like why does it look so funny because it's not how i expected myself to look i guess <laughs> And then I, when I looked up, <laughs> I saw this, like, shadowy figure of a woman behind my family who was all, like, clustered around the table looking at me. And this woman was behind my family, and she was just standing there smiling. She was dressed in, like, 18th century clothing or something like that. Like, definitely wasn't from our time. And then she just started to, like, walk behind my family and go. And my family, like, they noticed, I remember they noticed me, like fixating on her and watching her but and they asked me like what's going on like what's going on but i you know i was one year old one year old i didn't have the vocabulary to explain so i just kind of like pointed and never forgot about it mm. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't I, re- I don't remember feeling scared, but I remember noting knowing that like she was different. Yeah. That's one of those weird memories. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot to process just in the first, you know, 5 years of life. Yeah, I've been in a constant state of mind fuck since I was born. I joke and say that sometimes, but like it's it's the reality. <laughs> when when one stage yeah. of mind fuck ends, the other one begins. So, what happened with the 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 situation with your mother and the Hell's Angels? Like you you all tried to es- escape that house as well, or what happened? Well, she took us somewhere really far away. Um and it was family. If I remember correctly, we went to stay. Well, it wasn't family. It was like family friends. But like most of the people that like treated my mom like family were not related to her in any like blood or even marriage way. They were just there for her. So we went, we stayed with like some friends of hers. It was like essentially a sister and her kids. And we were there for a long time. And like she essentially ghosted my dad. She ghosted everybody. But she also ghosted my dad because he was getting essentially increasingly pushy with trying to get custody of me. He saw, like, the crappy behavior. He didn't want me being involved in that. So he was trying to get custody, and she was okay with that because she was... I mean, she shouldn't have admitted this, but she admitted this to me, like, through most of my life, that I was her favorite kid. So I was the one that she did not want to give up under any circumstances. She'd already let my sister go live with his dad. She'd lost my, my older brother. She did not want to lose me at all. So she just like disappeared and ghosted my dad and it was, it was months and he eventually found us. But, um, Hmm. I think she just disappeared on the hell's angels and moved, you know, like two or three hours away. And like, that was it. I don't, I don't remember it ever being brought up again. Like she had plenty of other like drug sales issues and stuff, but that was like, you know, hood stuff for heroin, and it, it her only issue there was the cops, who was never, like, people trying to be violent towards us, that I knew of, anyway. There was no more running in the middle of the night, that's for sure. Sorry, there's no, no more running once you arrived at the, the family friends, or when? Well, yeah, we basically just stayed there, and we hid, and I think my mom, like, got a job and stuff, and I just stayed at that house and hung out with her kids, and, you know, occasionally my sister when she came to visit and stuff, and okay, it was, it was one of those, like, um, she was just trying to stay out of sight of everybody, especially my dad, probably embarrassed. <laughs> she was embarrassed? Why would she be embarrassed? Because uh, of her behavior, you know, like. It it was one of those things where, like, my mom, my mom made a lot of fuck-ups in her life, and I spent a lot of time talking to her about her fuck-ups, and the biggest thing that she expressed over all of it was just embarrassment, you know, embarrassment that she didn't have her her shit together enough for her kids, embarrassed she couldn't protect us from, you know, all that she was supposed to, embarrassed she couldn't take care of us in general, like... That was essentially her life in a nutshell. It was an eternal state of embarrassment. Okay. Did she eventually get her shit together? No. She tried a a couple of times. Um, She tried, like, once when I was in middle school, and she ended up relapsing, disappearing. And then she came again, back again when I was in high school. And, like, she stuck around until she died. But from what I can tell now, she died, like, I guess some other family tried to cover it up, but she died of a heroin overdose. So she, she, well, she ran into, that's a whole story. That's pretty crazy. She ran into traffic, but what made her run into traffic was bad heroin from my understanding. Wow. That's some really bad heroin. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. The way, the what my stepdad supposedly said happened was that she was being, she thought she was being chased by demons. So she ran out into traffic what some family theorize happened is that he was actually abusing her, and that's why she ran out in the traffic. And then even more family, including the guy that provided her with the drugs, says, hey, it was bad drugs. So <laughs> I'm really not sure what happened. How long ago was that? That was when I was eight, right before I turned 18, so almost 10 years ago. Okay. And what, what was your life like at that point? A lot simpler than it is now. Like, it was complicated because of my mom, but I was also, I was doing the high school thing, and I was, I I mean, I tried to be a good student. I was trying to go to college, do all of that stuff. I didn't really get in trouble. 
I didn't even smoke weed really until after I turned 18. Like, so I, I just tried to, you know, be normal, basically. And because I'd grown up in this crazy box essentially my whole life, and then I tried to shove myself into a normal box for school, and I was like, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to college, and I'm gonna, you know, be what my mom never could be, basically. But yeah, college was not okay. was not for me, <laughs> for different reasons. <laughs> sure, it kind of sounds like you were trying to, I don't know, maybe move move on too quickly, or or, or hide from the the tragedy of what happened with your mom would you say well, that yeah or, exactly or, or like the only way i knew how to cope with what was going on was to try and make it so i didn't end up like her part of the problem was i had everybody in my life comparing uh, me to her i look a lot like her so that's where it started but like it was also as i got older everybody's like you have to do this or you're gonna end up like your mom so it was hmm. so i was trying to run from it but it was also me trying to like prevent the same thing from happening in some regards yeah how did you deal with her death other other than that not well i essentially like swallowed my feelings on it and then got into a relationship like i don't know two months after it happened and tried to lose myself in that relationship which blew up in my face right before i went to college so like okay (laughs) i didn't really know how to deal with it (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, who would? I guess it's it's uh, you know even for somebody who have been through so many things, that's that's just mind blowing. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> so, what happened when you go to college? That was where I tried to. F- college was a very interesting time for me because, in a lot of ways, it was very disappointing because I expected it to be like this grand thing, so different from high school. And then, like, I got there and I moved into a dorm. And then I realized that I moved into a dorm with, like, metaphorically everybody I hated from high school. And I had to deal with them 24 hours a day. And I was just like, oh, fuck, what did I do? <laughs> um, but it was it was amazing because I had a lot of time to figure shit out while I was in college. So I, I, was, I worked at the library. And um, the library, like, the ladies that hired me, they knew that I liked to read, so they essentially went into the system and manually changed my permissions to give me graduate student permissions for checking out books, which meant I could check out books for the whole semester, which is how I did my textbooks, and I could also check out as many books as I wanted. So, like, I went nuts on trying to figure out who the hell I was, because it was like, okay, I grew up with parents that didn't really like the government, but, like, Am I a socialist? You know, am I, am I, you know, what am I? Like, who am I? So I was reading, I read Marx, I read Kant. I even went to a socialist, like, convention at my college. And I was like, I was just sitting there listening to the people speak the whole time. Like, yeah, this is not for me. (laughs) What, what didn't you like about it? I just, like, a lot of it talked, well, for Kant specifically, if we're talking about Kant, I didn't like the whole, like... You know, it's all about your intentions because he he talks a lot about how your intentions are what matters, not the end result. But like, you know, it could be said like Hitler was trying to cleanse the world. His intentions were pure with his Holocaust. But that doesn't mean it was right. And I, I just had a hard time, like, agreeing with that. And then there was, like, and then I read Marx and was trying to, like, wrap my head around, you know, how society would work in a communist world. And, you know, because, I, cause like, I think everybody kind of has that basic, like, why do I have to work for money gut instinct at some point in their life. <laughs> and, like, so yeah, I was like, hey, yeah. maybe maybe we shouldn't have to work for money. So I tried to explore that. And, like, the more I, like, explored it, the more I realized, like, that's just not how people work. You're not going to motivate people to do things on that sort of system. It just that's why money works as well as it does. That's why people are willing to kill over money. It is a, it's an incredible motivator, even if it does seem a little bit silly. Right. And then and then I read you know I read some Konkin. I just read some like anarchist you know theory in general. I read about agorism, and I was like, well, that makes sense to me. The problem is. When I accepted I was an agorist, I was also president of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, 
So it was just a club, but the idea of even being president of that was cringeworthy. <laughs> well, kind of. It's a, it's still a, it's a similar similar goal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because like I remember like trying so hard to become president, and I became president, and then I became an anarchist like right after that, and it was just like I had no <laughs> oomph to do it. You know, I was like, you guys can do what you want. Okay. <laughs> like, tell us what to do. And I'm like, I well, won't. Just to, to clarify, because people in the audience maybe not familiar with, uh, what was his name? Samuel Konkin III, right? Yeah, Samuel Edward Konkin III. He's he's essentially the guy that coined right. the term agorism, which really he, he just described, like, how humans already naturally interact in markets. The idea with agorism is something like by by using black markets or being being little entrepreneurs, uh, everybody individually doing this, then we can gain more power. We don't necessarily need state force to, to well, rule society. It's, it's, something like that. Right? The thing the thing with agorism is it doesn't even necessarily the the reason I like it is it doesn't require everybody else to agree with me or become involved. So like. The whole point of agorism is you're just trying to live with as little state influence as possible. And what that looks like is different for every agorist. Like, because it, it's down to what risks are you willing to take, you know? I, and when uh-huh. you think about it, like, I personally, I've risked a lot to be an agorist. I've, I've almost lost my life over agorism. Literally, like, in that murder, I <laughs> technically the reason I was there was a commitment to my beliefs of agorism. So. Right. Yes. Well, let's, we'll talk about that when the. Yeah, that, that's something that everybody's yeah. got to figure out for themselves, though. But, like, agorism is literally just about trying yes. to find freedom in your own personal lifetime now instead of, you know, it's like trying to put the libertarian into theory into practice instead of just talking about it in some distant, possibly tax-free future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, ojalá. Uh, so how did that express itself when you when you identified with the ideas of Conk and what changed in your life? Well, I mean, when I woke up to anarchism and the world and the state of the world and the fact that I didn't like how things were going, I kind of got like pretty depressed. And the only thing that got me out of my, you know, initial depression over everything was because like. Ron Paul was running for president again at the time for the last time. And like, I was kind of excited about that, but on some level I knew he wasn't going to have any real shot. So I was looking for like a real way to pursue something in my life, you know, and it was a combination of reading Mm -hmm. about agorism through Konkin. And it was about finding Bitcoin that it was just like, Oh, finally now I have what to do. It's not just, okay, this all sucks. The economy's failing. Everything's going to hell. The The government's trying to control us. You know, they can, you know, they're seeing through your Facebook and your smartphone, all of that, like doom and gloom. I was just like, I came out of it like, but like agorism was a way to start applying the things that I was feeling then in my life right. instead of just, oh, this is what it could be like 10 years from now or 20 years from now, like a lot of these people theorize. Right, right. So at that stage, do you think there was there was something about the way your mother lived her life that that was still influencing you? Like, were you trying? Were you somehow being like her, or were you rebelling against the idea that you had of her? Like you said, well, I was doing both, and I didn't realize it until recently. Because yeah. like a lot of my actions were like, hmm. you know what I would imagine my mom more refined being, essentially. Because, like, I mean, I I made a lot of the somewhat rash choices that she did as far as, like, you know, growing cannabis and stuff like that was concerned. But I was also a lot more intelligent mm. when it came to things like I was, and I'm still like this, like, I won't have a child under under the wrong circumstances. I just won't do it. Whereas she had mm-hmm. five kids under right. the wrong circumstances. And, like... She was also an alcoholic from the time she was five years old on. And I've never really even liked to drink alcohol in general. So, like, I was, like, in in some ways trying to live for her, but, like, doing it better. Or so I thought. I I ended up making a lot of the same mistakes. Okay. (laughs) So, in a way, some of her values were were coming through. Like, I guess she valued independence a, a lot. 
she she valued independence. She also valued the hustle. Like my mom, my mom specifically, like my dad worked under the table most of my life and stuff, but he wasn't super motivated by money. But like, you know, my mom was always trying to sell something. A lot of her influence, it was also her stubbornness, you know, like, cause she, she pursued what she loved and she <laughs> was really stubborn about it. And that was a lot of, you know, kind of what I took with me. Also, I often say, like, I would not have gone on the run outside of the United States had my mom not spent most of my childhood running from the cops in Ohio. Because, you know, she was the woman we'd go out and she'd see a police cruiser and she would shrink down in her seat and hide until he passed because she was that paranoid. Yeah, yeah. All right. So she definitely set a precedent. <laughs> That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So did you drop out of college? I did. I dropped out of college. It was it was kind of a long process. I was in college for, um, I think, a year and a half almost. And, like, it, I, was, I was tired of college. Like, I met John about six months after I got to college, the beginning of the second semester. Was when I met John, and soon after I met John, he John's showed your later long-term boyfriend. Yeah, my now 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 dead, but he's the one that's in a large part like responsible for why I am quite where I am today. Um, so like I met him back then. I had met John before that. John was a huge catalyst because like I was already looking and like I said, I was looking into a lot of like who I am politically. And like right as I was deciding on essentially libertarianism, I met him and he was essentially the role of the anarchist because like he had just gotten out of prison for growing weed. He was essentially a symbol of like rebellion and anarchy. So I started hanging out with him. Um, he was also growing weed again at that time, which I found incredibly attractive, I guess. And at that time, I also, <laughs> I also started to naturally pull away from my family because I was, like I mentioned earlier, I was realizing a lot of the stories that I was told about my childhood were lies told to make me feel better about what was going on. And I was pissed about it because I felt like my, my reality was fabricated. So I was pushing everybody away left mm. and right. Um, I had this aunt, and she, I still have this aunt, I just don't talk to her anymore because she's crazy, and um, she was she was the one that pushed me to go to college in the first place. She told me it was my only ch chance at success and happiness, and I, I bought into that, and then I got to college and I was depressed because, for many reasons, like, I just, that's not the format that I need to learn, and it took me a long time to admit that. After I met John, he started telling me about School Sex Project, and I was listening a lot to Brett Vinat, who was talking about, like, you know, and John Taylor Gatto and all these people talking about the origin of the school system, and I just couldn't ignore it. I couldn't be a part of it anymore. So you're talking about how the school, yeah, the school model is kind of based on this Prussian military model. Yeah, and it's all about control. It's not about creativity. It's essentially designed to brainwash everybody and like it works you know i i honestly like i was i was raised skeptical of the government by my parents but somehow i had myself convinced that the schools were okay and hmm. <laughs> and it was and i put a lot of effort and a lot of myself into the school and as soon as i realized like what it was and i like it also took me admitting like i had a lot of learning issues in school like i remember having meltdowns in certain class because i couldn't figure concepts out the way that they were teaching them and i tried to pretend like i was good at school but honestly i had to work my ass off to be even remotely good at school it wasn't easy you know it wasn't fun like and it wasn't what i wanted to do for the rest of my life um so when I actually dropped out, it was like about six months after I disowned that aunt of mine. I like I, I quit talking to her on voting day because she she called me a selfish bitch because I refused to vote. <laughs> and um, I said I, I I said what I said to her in 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 words was she goes did you vote today in a text message and I responded with I refuse to provide consent for my enslavement and she just <laughs> <laughs> she lost her shit and I I just never talked to her after that again but like about six Whoa, about okay. six months after <laughs> I called my dad and I called my dad crying and I was like dad 
I can't do it anymore. And he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, college, I can't do it. I just, I can't do it. And he just like, he was like, oh, okay, I saw this coming. Do whatever you need to do. You don't have to stay in college. So I dropped out that day and I never looked back. (laughs) Okay. And then uh, I guess you started some kind of business of your own? Well, at that time I was, um, I was essentially about to move into a growing situation with John again like we when when we started dating he was growing that essentially went to hell because our landlord found it and was like I'm not going to call the cops on you guys but get the hell out of my house <laughs> so right we were getting into another <laughs> one of those situations because the way we saw it as agorist the only way that we were going to make the money that we wanted to especially because bitcoin it was like I don't know, $10 a coin. And we were trying to collect at that time. We were like, all right, let's make as much money as we can. So we entered the illegal market again. I like dabbled in some small businesses. Like I was making hemp jewelry and selling that stuff. But most of what I dabbled in at first was actually like just straight direct illegal markets, selling weed, growing weed and trying not to get caught. And um, it wasn't, until a few years later that we moved out of that situation and started to really try to like live the agorist lifestyle. It was also when we went and lived off grid, we like moved to this house in the middle of the hood in Cleveland that our friend let us live in. And it was in the middle of winter. It was cold as hell. And we started a farm on stolen government land. And that was like my first like real attempted at agorism. Cause I was trying to sell that produce as organic produce. Okay. Wait, how did you start a farm on stolen government? So, like, the thing with Cleveland is they have this progressive program that they call the land bank. And the land bank is just a fancy way of saying, like, we find these people to the point where they couldn't afford it. And then they just had to give ownership. So they, like, would find them for petty things, like, your grass is too long. And then they would find them. Or you have crack in your sidewalk. And then they would find them. And poor people can't really affect forward to pay stupid fines like that so they just let it pile up and after a while it becomes thousands of dollars and the state says look you can go to jail for this or you can just give us your house and most people just fold and give them the house and when they give them the house most of the time they just knock it down and they leave this empty lot sitting there well like the neighborhood that we had lived in was kind of spiteful yeah it is um Especially because this neighborhood we lived in was right next to the steel mill. Like, Cleveland was a big steel city. And there were these neighborhoods that were entirely devoted to housing the workers. Built with all these little houses, like, jam-packed with these little houses that all looked the same. They were kind of ugly, but it was also, it had its charm to it. Unlike, when I lived in that neighborhood, there was, like, less than 10 houses in the whole neighborhood. And they were knocking down houses, and all of the lots around my house were empty. And not being used. So we got the bright idea to farm them. And we did. And it was funny because they couldn't figure out who the hell was farming it the entire time we were doing it. (laughs) Why was it so difficult for them? Because, well, the house that we were living in, it looked like it was abandoned. Also, the man that lived Ah, in that house historically did not give a shit about gardening. So they just assumed that... Uh. And and something interesting also that I was told, because I actually like encountered the guy that claimed to control the land bank because I found him. It was like the end of the season. It was November. There were no plants even left, but he was like stumbling through the garden. And I just went out there to see what he was, who the hell he was. And he was like, do you know whose garden this is? And I was like, I'm not here to answer your questions. I'm here for you to answer my questions. Yeah. Who are you? And he goes, well, I'm here with the yes, exactly. He's yes. like, I control these lots. And I was like, <laughs> clearly not. And he's like, do you know who does this? And I was like, no, I'm not here to answer <laughs> your questions. And he's like, well, if you could, if yeah. you know, you know, like you're supposed to apply to be able to garden these lots and. He goes, it's a problem we have. Somebody all over the city just keeps doing this. And it was like, oh, yeah, I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. It's a problem. About. Somebody is growing food without our permission. Exactly. And, I, and like, I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, you know, that's just there. They're like, yeah. well, he's like, well, why did you come out? And I'm like, well, I wanted to see why, why you were stumbling through this garden. Maybe you were drunk. Maybe you were lost. Like, <laughs> yes. 
Yes. <laughs> that was that was a very fun time because like when we started that process, our neighbors drove by. I remember this one lady was like, what are you doing? And we're like, we're starting a garden. And she's like, no, you're not. And she just drove away <laughs> after saying that. She just said, no, you're not and drove away. Okay. She's in denial of reality. I yeah. Guess. And we had this huge garden. Our neighbor across the street, he was funny. He was this old drunk. And he would come out and tell us how you couldn't grow food in that neighborhood, how it was impossible. And then we filled that whole that whole two lots, two and a half lots with food. And he just stood there in awe at it. It wow. was hilarious. Yeah, that was a funny... That was a stressful <laughs> time in my life. But, like, it was a funny time in my life. Because, like, through all of these times with John... Yeah. We were dealing with the craziness of our lives combined with the craziness of our relationship, which was a lot like Katie's, right. which was a previous episode of this. Okay, yeah. Uh, how how was it crazy? Well, like well, like John, he was a di- diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and hmm. he was pretty textbook bipolar. Um, he he also like had a lot of issues like. Stemming from his childhood, his dad had committed suicide, or so he thought. Apparently, the cops were more involved with that than his family told him originally, but, like, that's a different story. Huh. Um, but, yeah, yeah he was, he, and he was very much like, it's my way or the fucking highway. And he was also, like, that combined with being, like, fucking brilliant and charming. So it was, like, it was a battle with him, the whole relationship. From the very beginning. I don't even remember what the first issue was, but it was always like I wasn't doing what he expected or I wasn't saying what he expected or I wasn't thinking as well as it was generally related to my autism. I realize this now, but like during it was like, Ah. why is this going on? Why, you know, why are we still together if you have all these problems with me and don't like anything about me? It was it was a hard relationship. So why why was he with you? If he had those problems. He, he had, like, he had those problems with me, and he could play confident, but, like, realistically, he had never developed beyond being a little boy. And for me, like, I I was safe, and I, I was, I'm one of those people that, like, I mean, this, this was definitely foolish in that situation. Like, I essentially decided I was going to be loyal to him, and that was it. And I dealt with so much shit In regards to that, he knew how difficult he was. So I think on some level, he was just Mm. like, this is, you know, this is the only person that's going to tolerate me long term. Hmm. When do you say he was like a a little boy? Because when he would get, get, he'd get angry over everything. For example, food. Food was a huge source of conflict because we never wanted to eat the same thing. And it was like, if I just cooked based off of what I had in the house without consulting him first, he would always get really upset about me consulting, not consulting him about it to the point to where he wouldn't eat the food. And he would just essentially make life miserable over it, you know? Or, alternatively, you, you couldn't win with him because, like, if I went and tried to ask him, hey, what do you want to eat? This is what we have. He'd just be like, ah, leave me alone. so like it was a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation with him forever and he had like a habit of throwing temper tantrums that were that they could be pretty like massive and it was just like i'm the type of person that when people like angrily outburst at me i shut down and i like i just kind of give up (laughs) and that's pretty much what i did there right right Kind of, uh, yeah, I, I used to have that tendency. I still do sometimes, like just to, just become despondent, like uh, talking monotone or something like that. Yeah, I mean, after a certain point, like it, I just kind of like I couldn't anymore. You know, like I was trying to an extent in the relationship, but I was also like very exhausted most of the time. <laughs> and so you you made that decision to stay with him and. You did that like that was the the level that you thought about it. Like I made that decision, and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, part of it was because like for how difficult he was, he could also be brilliant in other regards. 
And he was the first person who was talking about a lot of the stuff that I was getting into that, like, I encountered in the world. Okay. Yeah, so very similar to what Katie said. Exactly. Because, like, yeah, he was an ass and he could act like a child. But, man, he was charismatic. He was brilliant. He, like, he knew so much and could come up with such good ideas. He was just too difficult to put most of them in action because he ended up pissing off the people he was working with. All of the time. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah, that's that's worrisome. So I, I guess we'll move, move, uh, move forward a bit. So what happened, uh, like this, the situation around your the charges that were laid against the both of you? Um, that was just a simple situation of we were in the wrong place at the wrong time and things went bad. I I still fully believe, like... What happened there was we were moving from Ohio to Detroit. So we like went to some family's house, filled up our car with stuff that we were storing there and we're going back to Detroit. We had a little dog with us. And, um, and part of the reason why we lived in Detroit was because of the abandoned houses and how you can just adventure through them. That's important because where we got arrested was a was an abandoned house right around the corner from where my aunt was. My puppy was like, I need to go to the bathroom. So we stopped, we found this house, and we're like, oh, let's just adventure this house, let the dog out, and then go. Well, as we went to go, some cops showed up, and the cops took one look at John, and they were like, we're searching your car. And we were, you know, we followed Barry Cooper and all that, and we were like, we do not consent to searches and all that, and all that really did was piss them off. Yeah. Um, we filmed them the whole time. <laughs> they they false positive down to our car with the, with the dogs, like... It was. Uh, right. There was there was stuff in the car, but the co- the dogs also didn't mark on it. And John knew that because he had experience raising those dogs through family, like some of his family trained police dogs. So he knew, you know, what to pay attention for and what they were doing wrong. Um, the fucked up situation with the charges is I had mentioned previously I was president of that drug policy organization. That was essentially a group Ah. totally intended to legalize drugs. Yeah. As you would expect, occasionally undercovers would show up to those meetings to try and figure out, you know, drug sales information and stuff like that. People maybe who to target. And yeah, the guy that ended up charging me that day with the crimes ended up being somebody that used to go to my meetings. He would pretend that he was from a different school trying to set up a students for sensible drug policy chapter and was having difficulty and was asking for advice. But he was kind of weird and he didn't really like seem to know anything about drug policy. Yeah, that dude ended up being an undercover (laughs) cop. And he walked up that day when they they arrested us. He walked up to me and he looked at me and goes, Oh, look who we have here. I don't know what I'm charging you with, but it's going to stick. And I was just like, oh. And the guy, the other cop that was there that like found us, he was trying essentially to play the nice cop. He was like, oh, he doesn't mean that. You've got like maybe one felony at most in your car. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I get to the jail, and it was five felonies, Ugh. all for cannabis, all just because all right. I was moving. Like, I had I had paraphernalia. I had a scale, you know. It was in my car, so I got a trafficking charge. Like, <sighs> So it was an actual substance. It was there, was, there was substance. The thing was, like, and it was stupid because, like, uh-huh. we had had some – when you make dabs, for example – the material that you extract the dabs from is useless. There's nothing left. It's just like the the weed is there and it looks like weed, but if you smoke it, it doesn't get you high. That's good for compost. It's actually... Just to clarify, a lot of people probably don't know what a dab is. What is a dab? A dab is just cannabis oil. Um, It's extracted generally using uh-huh. BHO, which is like... um Or butane, not BHO. That's a t- term for the dabs, but it's... It's butane extracted cannabis oil and you can smoke it and it's, you know, generally super pure. And it's apparently really highly illegal in Ohio. Um, just having the chemicals, weed and butane together is a felony. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was 
weed that we had blown, so, like, we had taken the dabs out of it and smoked them almost a year before that. But we were starting, like, a garden in Detroit, so we wanted to take that weed with us because we had never been pulled over and searched before. We were like, let's just take it and put it in the compost pile. That was the plan. We didn't even have dabs to smoke. We were out of dabs. We had money but nothing to smoke, like... We had a bunch of pipes and stuff <laughs> on us. It was stupid. And we had a case of Charge for compost. Yeah. And they, that's one of the felonies was for like, it was a lot of weed, but it was like a lot of weed that had nothing left in it. Like it couldn't have gotten anybody high. Okay. So it was really sad. <laughs> and yeah, not only See, that, a, but it a was a question a, that comes to mind. I remember I, t- I told someone about this story once and they did say to me something like, wow, they were, you know, they were making drugs, you know, that's, that's, that's terrible. I don't think this, this, uh, uh, this point of view is so common these days, but what would you say to that? The thing is like, there are so many things that people do in their everyday lives that are illegal that they don't even realize are illegal, you know, like just little things. <laughs> Where yes. does the line? Where does the line end? You know, I I saw a lot of comments like that too because I, you know, there's the YouTube video up of the live videos that Henza and I did on Facebook right after the murder, and I did what mm. nobody's supposed to do. I went and I read the comments, and the comments were things like, ah. "Oh, she doesn't seem that upset," and I was like, "What do you mean? I was hysterical, like." Uh, you know, like yeah. some of the comments people come <laughs> up with, but one of the big things was, oh, you broke the law, you moved to Mexico, you broke the law again, and, you know, the murder happened because of it. Deal with it. You know, like, I've I've gotten a lot of that. And it's just like, do yeah. you really want to live? Mean, a- obviously, your, your actions have a part of this, but it's not so simple, like, in, in terms of justice or, or something like that. Exactly. You know, like, do we really want to live in a world that's persecuting innocent, you know, people? Like, because, like, I've never heard anybody with my cannabis use, you know, like, so why is right. it that I've had to go through all that, of the difficulties? People think, though, they think they like one person said to me, well, you were, you were making drugs and you're selling them. And that's the, you know, the customer is the victim, which, and uh, you know, I find it hard to understand that but <laughs> yeah no <laughs> that's like, what some people seem to think a, a lot of people like i've seen like the analogy i shared a meme recently and was basically like drug dealers get more time in prison than rapists people ask for drugs nobody asks for rape you know that's the right. thing is like yeah. and that even you know I, I could say my early childhood was totally ruined by heroin because it was but i like hmm. Because, you know, it was in a lot of ways, but, like, it's also, you know, it's more than that. Yeah. Your your mother's actions and her circumstances and, and the, the, the problems surrounding that. Yeah, it's it's there's a lot more to it than, than just the illegality of it. And it's like, why are these things illegal? And what's the true effect of them being illegal? And Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a complex question. All right, so so then you got you got charged with these crimes, with these felonies, and what was going to happen? Well, we were in jail for quite a long time. At one point, they they uh, the prosecutor said no bail, so he was trying to make it so that way there was no possibility for bail at all, not even like a million dollar bail, like none, because he thought we were a flight risk. Hmm. eventually we did get out we had to pay a thousand dollars each to do it um and we did get out okay and and we went to we went to part of part of getting out was we had pre-bail like drug test or post-bail drug testing or something like that so i had to go get drug tested literally every single day and i've never passed a drug test to this day because i was getting drug tests for almost a month and i still wasn't testing clean i wasn't smoking either and my my probation officer was like, okay, when do you think you're going to, you know, when do you think you're going to test negative? Like, when do you think that's going to happen? It's like, I have no idea. You know, I've been smoking a lot of cannabis and eating a lot of cannabis every single day for more than five years. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take. 
a few days okay. later, I went, I, went, I went to what was my last court appearance. And my last court appearance, the judge asked me, like, okay, have you been doing your drug testing? And I'm like, yes. Have you passed? No. She's like, well, she, like, looked at her calendar and was like, it's 30 days on Tuesday from when you're supposed to, or um, from when you supposedly last consumed cannabis. You'll test positive by then, which I knew I wasn't going to test positive by then. I think it was like a Friday and they wanted me to, me to test positive by Monday. And I had just taken a test right before that. Positive is, is in clear. Yeah, they, they want, well, they wanted me to test as no THC in my system to prove that I hadn't been smoking. Right. And um, yeah, after that happened, like John and I, we got in the car and we were already discussing when he got out of jail, like, if this goes bad, what are we going to do? Because we can't afford, you know, lawyers. What are we going to do? And he was like, well, why not Mexico? That was something I had thought of while I was in jail. <laughs> and it was like, my roommate even suggested it to me. She's like, you might just want to go to Mexico and never come back. And I'm like, what? And she's, yeah. like, I, she's like, I know somebody who did that. Like, you can totally do that. And I was like, okay. And then after, you know, it was, I got out before he did. And then when I like essentially picked him up from jail and we got home, it was like, so Mexico? And it's like, well, let's see if this lawyer, because his mom had hired a lawyer. And it's like, okay, let's see if this lawyer. Can so what do you us. think? Is that idea just come from the movies? I mean, obviously there is some, <laughs> some reality. Okay. To so it. like we were already, we were, we had already been looking into getting, out of the United States for years because we were following Bitcoin, we were following Berwick and Dollar Vigilante, uh -huh. and we were like, fuck the United States. But we thought we were going to go to Cambodia. We just never got there. We ended up spending, um, most people don't know this, but like at one point we had like 130 Bitcoin. That was when Bitcoin was like $30 a coin though. So it didn't mean so much back then. Right. <laughs> and we spent all of that living off grid yeah. and then we got arrested right after that. And then it was just like, well, fuck it. Let's just go to Mexico, you know, and then that court date happened and it was like, all right, it's time to go. And that was literally like we we switched almost like automatic autopilot from trying to stay in the area and go to the court dates to OK, to Mexico. And our first plan was like <laughs> right after that, like somewhere in that like first week we were out we got a phone call from our boss who was paying us to do cannabis, paying us very well to do cannabis work in Detroit. And he was like, yo, where are you guys at? And we're just like, oh, essentially we got pinched. We got fucked. And he's like, well, there's work. If you want it, come back. So that's what we did. We just went straight <laughs> to Detroit. We went and we worked for Roland. And then we went to Oregon and tried to get more work there. And that was a fucking fail. But like, yeah, it was just like getting to the border. It was border or bust, literally, from that point forward. Yes, <laughs> border or busted, right. A beautiful thought. Thank you for joining us. So that's the first half of the interview. I put out the second half next week where Lily ends up moving around the United States for a bit and then decides to come down here to Mexico and moving to Acapulco. And the unfortunate and, and later wonderful things that happened to her and her journey of self-discovery and what she figured out about life. So we'll get into that next week. Her website, remember, highlyfunctionalgrowth.com. My website, beautifulpodcast.com. If you want some cognitive behavioral services, go on beautifulpodcast.com. You see the link in the header and you can schedule a time with me. If you want to share this around on social media or share it with your friends, maybe send a little message to somebody who you think would benefit or somebody who would be entertained or interested. Maybe somebody fleeing drug charges. I don't know. <laughs> but go ahead and send it to somebody and give them a little reason why they might find this interesting. And also, if you feel like going on Apple Podcasts and giving a positive review, that will be much appreciated. It helps boost the visibility of a beautiful thought, this podcast. <laughs> Nearly forgot the name. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day.
Oh,